to Master of None with Clifford Hudson, the podcast where we discover how jack-of-all-trades can still reach the top. It's time to embrace your wide variety of interests and turn down the prevailing pressure to spend all of your time becoming an expert. The greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery, and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity. Now, on to today's conversation. Welcome to my podcast, Master of None. This is Clifford Hudson. Our discussion today is going to focus on my book, Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top, but a subset of that, a chapter entitled The Perfect Storm. I experienced that perfect storm in my time as the CEO of Sonic, when in 2017-2018, as we were pulling together a number of key initiatives, we also confronted the challenge of an activist stockholder and a very hungry private equity potential acquirer. The fact is, all of those initiatives came together in such a way that were very successful for our stockholders, but challenging for me as executive and for our team. The perfect storm had a perfect outcome for our stockholders. That perfect storm concept obviously can occur in many other settings. And today we're going to talk about the life of Thurgood Marshall and how in his career, a very long career, that eventually took him to the Supreme Court of the United States as a member of that high court, but review his career as an establishment outsider, counsel for the NAACP, the record number of cases he argued before the Supreme Court, and then after 20 years of Supreme Court victories challenging a history of racial inequity, suddenly with the election of John F. Kennedy as President of the United States, a perfect storm in Thurgood Marshall's career, one that took him from an outsider to the upper echelons of power. My guest today offers unique perspective on the career of Thurgood Marshall because my guest today is Thurgood Marshall Jr., an established legal counsel in his own right, and who better to discuss his father's legal career and the events that catapulted his dad to Supreme Court. I think you'll enjoy listening to Thurgood's story. It's a unique one and an interesting one. So I look forward to sharing this time with you with Thurgood Marshall, Jr. My guest this morning is Thurgood Marshall, Jr. Thurgood is a graduate of the University of Virginia Law School, and he has the unusual distinction in serving in all three branches of our federal government. After finishing law school, Thurgood became a law clerk for U.S. District Court Judge Barrington Parker in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. Later still, he served as counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee and the Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. And that must have been a fascinating experience for him, something I would have enjoyed doing in my own career. Later still, Thurgood served as assistant to the President and White House Cabinet Secretary to President Clinton. After having served as Director of Legislative Affairs and Deputy Counsel to Vice President Al Gore, So a rich experience that he has had from a professional standpoint. This morning, the focus of the conversation between Thurgood and I will be much more on another Thurgood Marshall, Thurgood Marshall Jr.'s father and his extraordinary legal career. And the themes in my book, Master of Numb, that include both variety of outlooks, variety of opinion, a variety of people, and how these things can make life richer. And in the end, after a long career, in each case, 
but in a long career with Thurgood Marshall. Really a perfect storm of things coming together to take his career to a very different place. So it's my pleasure this morning to have that conversation with Thurgood Marshall, Jr. Thurgood, how are you doing this morning? Very good. Thank you, Cliff. Good to be with you. This morning, I think it's a fascinating thing to look at these long careers, which I guess you and I have had long careers, but uh, your father had a longer one still. My impression, my recollection is he was born in in Baltimore, early part of the last century, just over 100 years ago. Do I have that right? That's right. And practiced law there. Okay. And I'm curious about something because of an article I read years ago about Supreme Court justices, um, their their orientation philosophically and the connection or correlation to birth order. You and I haven't talked about that. What 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 was your dad's birth order? Was he an only child or was he a younger child of, of several? Uh, older brother, Aubrey, who went on to become a, a doctor in Delaware. So they, they both did very, very well. Okay. So he was a, he was the younger of two children than your dad right. was. Well, the article I read uh, uh, suggested that more of the liberal and more democratic judges were uh, later in birth order, and the Republican and more conservative judges tended to be first or only child. So it was an interesting, you know, interesting piece. But uh, so thank you for confirming that <laughs> just now. So after growing up in, in Baltimore, he went on to Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, uh, apparently did well there. I'll, I'll think in some of my readings, it suggested that his girlfriend, who became his wife, helped make him a better student while he was there. I don't know any uh, greater story on that. But well, uh, do you recall what he what he studied there? What he studied at Lincoln University? Actually, I I don't. Um, I did look at his grades, which were were quite good. We we pulled those about five five or six years ago for a, a book project. You're right. He did very well, and uh, Vivian Burry, who had become his wife was a major part of that, as was her connection to his mother. He also did very well in getting in trouble. So he was suspended a couple of times, but he managed to, he had, and he, this was a, a bit of a theme through his, his schooling where he was typically at the top of the class in academics, but he was also among the most with demerits or some sort of suspensions. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting uh, thing. You you mentioned that because another little tidbit I read read and, and reading about your dad was that he had an uncle who warned his fiance about marrying him uh, because of his uh, kind of lack of diligence uh, on his path. I don't know if that's an accurate story, but it was an ironic one, certainly given the extraordinary career he had. So, Yeah, we, we like to think that's an accurate one. Okay, <laughs> okay. Now, because it comes into the conversation and a big factor in his life that comes in our conversation later. After finishing his degree at Lincoln University, he applied to the University of Maryland Law School. They denied his uh, entrance strictly on the basis of race. That is accurate. And that's consistent with what a number of schools were doing at the time. Right. I know, for right. example, in my home state of Virginia, the applications and the, the bar applications had requirements, for example, that, that applicants submit a photo. Mm, which is mm-hmm. sort of part of the yeah part of the way in which the they played those games, but in Maryland it was just straight up. Are you? If so, you're not being considered. Yeah. No need for any games. Just to, just straight out. Yeah. The reason I find that interesting, of course, historically, just the statement of our society, but as it related to his law practice, cases he later brought 
against some of those same schools, University of Maryland, but also University of Oklahoma, University of Texas. And when I say broad, I, I don't know what occurred in the trial court, but he certainly argued at the Supreme Court level. So, so, so he went on to Howard University at that time and graduated first in his class, I believe. He did. He started out there with, with a bit of his fun streak, battling with his focus on academics. Um, but he met, he met up at Howard with the man who would become his mentor and with so many of the other lawyers in the civil rights movement and continues to be a guidepost for so many of us who care about those issues. And that was Charles Hamilton Houston. Charles and, Hamilton uh, Houston, yeah. And the, the story, which is, again, hopefully a true story, but if, even if it's apocryphal, it, it makes some sense, was that they were the students, including my father, were playing dice after school one day. And Dean Houston came out, turned to them, and said if they continued along that path, they would never amount to anything. And indeed, he reminded them that his message for his law students was he was passing on to them the tools to do more than merely be lawyers. And that his belief was that they could use those tools to do good in their communities as lawyers, but also do important things for society as social engineers. It struck all of them in a way that one would hope. Well, it did, um, from anything I've read, it did appear as though Charles Hamilton Houston was very intent on using the training of young lawyers to attempt to address racial inequities and uh, in our society. And boy, did he uh, bring that home in a big way by mentoring your dad. That It's extraordinary the impact he must have had there. In my book, Master of None, I do speak quite a bit about a variety of voices. And clearly, you know, from my circumstance, that's a little bit more, good deal more in a corporate setting. But at the same time, the corporate setting, talking about having different voices you got to have different voices ultimately in order to have harmony. Some parallel there with music, but in fact, in life, I think that's true. I want to talk this morning about the cases your dad brought uh, before the Supreme Court in the 40s and 50s before becoming a judge himself. And there's quite an array of those. Perhaps as we walk through those, by the way, my recollection is from what I've read is that your 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 dad argued more cases before, more cases before the Supreme Court than any other lawyer ever. Quite a statement. Fairly extraordinary. At the, at the time. At, I think that, yeah, I think that caveat is what needs to be applied. Although I'm, uh, I have to tell you, I'm not absolutely sure that even that is accurate. There have been uh, a number of attorneys, uh, men and women since then, who've ar- who have argued more or appeared more times. But I, w- I will say just to, just uh, as a, a note for the record that often his record is often described as the the 30 or so cases he argued before the court as a civil rights attorney, what is neglected is there another dozen or more that he argued as solicitor general. The number for him in the in the history books is often misstated as a little bit lower than, than what it was. Right, right. Well, that's a, that's a serious addition and another feather in his cap from an exceptional legal career. So uh, this morning, I want to visit a little bit about uh, some of those cases that did argue before the Supreme Court as a civil rights lawyer, working, uh, my impression is, working as lead counsel for the NAACP at the time. So this is the philosophical interests of his on the, on the one hand, personal interests on his, obviously, as well, but a professional one due to his client being the NAACP, as well as the individuals that were subject to these cases. A lot of the cases involved due process claims. So while extremely important, um, a little less 
pertinent today is uh, at least things I think would be interesting to focus on the progression of the cases and the individuals that they involved. What I'd like to talk a little bit more instead of pure legal issues is more of the factual issues that were involved and the things that your dad was um, was helping challenge. One of the first cases looks like uh, that involved, well, one of the first cases, a jurisdiction case, the case that, that probably be an average listener could relate to a little bit more would be focusing on voting and voting rights in Smith v. Allwright. So a progression of these uh, that was 1944, 1946, something that I think is, you know, so recent in American history, not that the voting manipulation is not recent, but Morgan v. Virginia and the case involving uh, Irene Morgan on a bus, riding on a bus from Virginia to Baltimore. When the bus got crowded, she was asked to move to the back of the bus, consistent with Virginia law. And uh, as I understand that case, an interesting one. She was asked by the bus driver to move back to the bus. She refused to do that. They called a sheriff. He brought a warrant with him, served her with the warrant. She took the warrant, ripped it up, threw it out the window. He moved uh, toward her to grab her. And uh, according to the records, so they say, she kicked him in the nuts. I I found that to be uh, uh, interesting interesting piece of evidence. This, of course, uh, frustrated the sheriff uh, who did to go ahead, go ahead and arrest her. Uh, she was convicted of the lower court, taken to, you know, a conviction upheld in a higher court in Virginia, state of Virginia. And then the Supreme Court uh, threw it out because of the nature of the statute itself, ruling it unconstitutional. And so an interesting uh, set of facts, one you know, prevalent, perhaps particularly through the South at the time, but I, in preparing with you for this call, I do remember your finding particular interest in Irene Morgan's action with the sheriff due to your dad's uh, saying that he often utilized in talking about dealing with adversaries. And our listeners might enjoy hearing what, what that statement was that he would make. He did. He did. I'm sure he was particularly tickled by that fat pattern. Many of his clients included a lot of uh, nonviolent protesters, I will just say as a preface, but he he often liked to suggest that it's never appropriate to hit a person when they're down. But by the way, it's far easier to just kick them in the nuts if you really are of a mind to. (laughs) So they were, they were absolutely simpatico on that point. But I also, I, I, uh, it's remarkable to, we've discussed this uh, to us both that she not only refused to move, but she acted out in that way because it's just so we are at a time in 2020 when so many unfortunate incidents have occurred of late. On the one hand, there is the say their names portion of the reaction. On the other hand, what is so poignant about saying the names of these individuals who've been victims is that it is for us a reminder that there are many unnamed people who suffer the same the same yes. way. And yes. It is even more the case in that era when Irene Morgan did what she did. We can take some delight in how it was described and and what she did. And many people might think that she would have appropriately taken more stringent measures. But there are there are countless individuals from that era, and this was nearly ten years before Rosa Parks' remarkable moment. Right. But there are a number of individuals. I can give you some of those names as we go on, who suffered gravely 
permanently, uh, even fatally, for even just merely refusing to move. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that occurred the, uh, with Irene Morgan. It occurred in 1944. The case got to the Supreme Court in 1946. But they, the facts that case indicated even, you know, to go a little bit more in depth there, that she's traveling with a friend and who had a small child or a baby in her arms. And yet here you have the sheriff wrestling over them, trying to get them to move to the back of the bus. Kind of a exceptional to think of, by, I think, by today's standards with most of us, not unfortunately not exceptional at the time. So, and right. particularly with the same statutes being in place widely across the South. The thing that strikes me about Thurgood Marshall's career and the cases he brought in the 40s and 50s, there are any number of, you know, I think fascinating elements to this. But it does, it does feel like, to the greatest degree, most of the earlier cases were brought representing uh, individuals and individual claims. They were constitutional claims, but individual claims like Irene Morgan and like Ada Lois Fisher at the time the case first brought Ada Lois Sipwell. In each of these cases, these were circumstances where individuals had been you know, denied the right of access to, you know, fill in the blank, you know, move freely in commerce throughout mm-hmm. our country. But it, it, in one case, could be riding a bus. In another case, it's applying to law school, which Ada Lois Fisher was doing just that, applying to the University of Oklahoma. It comes close to me because of my years of living in Oklahoma City. A, a fairly uh, extraordinary circumstance of largely following, probably worth setting a little foundation here too with our listeners, that before the NAACP started filing these cases in the 40s into the 50s, in the 30s, the approach really had been, my impression, it had been much more, okay, Plessy v. Ferguson says separate but equal, then you got to make it equal. Whereas by the time we get into the 40s, the strategy seemed to shift to let's work to undermine the separateness here and try to make it so that we can be, you might say, in the same room, you know, to use the uh, top popular phrase from the Hamilton musical, I want to be in the room where it happens. Even similar thoughts attributed to uh, late Justice Ginsburg, you know, don't put me on a pedestal, just put me in the room where the discussion occurs and where the decisions happen and I need to participate. But a real shift in philosophy, 30s into 40s, Instead of just saying, okay, if we're going to be separate, we've got to be equal. Instead saying, we'll never be equal if we're separate. So a shift in, a significant shift, but also earlier primarily relying on cases involving uh, individual claims and individual individual remedies. It was more into the 50s. And so I think about this in part, one of the things in my book does have to do with the perfect storm that can occur over time. But the case has continued into the 50s, still a little bit more uh, one-on-one claims, but broadening to begin to attra- attack more systemic things. Uh, looking at late 40s, Rice, Rice v. Elmore, this was the practice of having white primaries, if I recall correctly. Do I have that right? Uh, Smith versus Allwright was the, the ultimate case on that, but yes. So shifting that that approach and shifting the... But uh, then also, uh, I think with an unexpected result in the late 40s, the Shelley v. Kramer, in which the uh, a homeowner, well, a neighborhood, an area of the city had restricted covenants in their deeds. And uh, this attacked by the NAACP when an individual tried to, of color tried to buy a house in an area 
and the neighborhood tried to enforce that. So a little broadening of the of the effort in terms of attempting to make it systemic. So I would ask you if these were things you discussed with your dad, but I think all these cases occurred before you were born and before I was born. So it did. The vast majority of them were long before I was born, actually. You're right. Right, right, right. Which has always, for me, separately been a, a reminder whenever I look at or, or study his work during that period. It's just a reminder that had I not come along so late in his life, uh, he was in his late 40s and was just about to the point where he was first appointed to a judgeship on the appeals court in New York. Had I come along when he was practicing law, the books about his period, that period in his life, indicate that he was on the road 250 or more days each year. The nature of his work was such that he was either working on cases which were moving at various stages at uh, uh, many, many locations around the country. And if he wasn't doing that, he was connecting up his travels with fundraising for those efforts. And in particular, as, as you know, the buildup to trials and appeals is the sort of the round the clock portion of the, the litigation mm-hmm. process. Um, and is typically exhausting for litigators. That was the moment when, at the conclusion of which, rather than celebrate too much, he certainly celebrated conclusions on these cases, he jumped onto the campaign trail to raise funds on the basically riding the, the winds right. of those right. victories. Yeah. But that, that oh. was an exhausting period of his life and he was rarely home. So I, I would never have seen him. Well, and thinking about the time, 1940s, 1950s, if he is going to do that, if he's going to interview witnesses, if he is going to get into deep into the nits of a case, he's not going to do that with significant benefit of telecommunications, certainly not in terms of distributing, uh, transferring documents and so on. But being on the ground at the place is probably a far more common than it is today in terms of necessity, right. necessitated the lifestyle you're describing of continuously on the road. So that's absolutely the case. And then of course, the other thing that they were doing was it didn't always work out according to plan, but you know, Rosa Parks turned out to be in many respects, an ideal symbol for so many parts of the movement. In many ways, that was no accident. There's, a, there's an element of thoughtful choreography that is apparent in the successful lines of cases on these various issues in that you want to, as you're building this area of the law, you want to try to make sure that your your primary cases have the best possible fact situations, claims, and claimants. Right. And that that also requires a lot of time on the ground, time on the road to make those assessments and work with local individuals. Right. And I, I recall that uh, um, when you think about that from the standpoint, Casey mentioned earlier, Ada Lois Fisher applying to law school at the University of Oklahoma. There was very much this approach. I mean, they selected a young woman who had a strong academic career, was you know physically attractive, came from a good family, you know, et cetera, et cetera, so that she would make a more, you might say, attractive plaintiff when the case ultimately was was brought. Cliff, on that point, I would I would add, and it, it's partly because it was if, if there was one clear message my father had for me and my brother about his work as a lawyer, it was the absolute courage and determination that was reflected in the commitment of his clients 
to what this was about and the, the, the local individuals, whether they were community organizers, lawyers, or supporters to support in any way they could this effort. Um, that included, because of course, the nearly all the attorneys on these cases who traveled in were not able to stay, particularly in the South, in public accommodations. That included volunteers who would put them up. There, was, there were stories they would tell about, in, in particular, Daisy Bates, who was an organizer in Little Rock, who put them up when they were handling the Little Rock 9 school desegregation case. And um, my father and the, the, the lawyer who often traveled with him on that, Wiley Branton, would stay in their living room on makeshift beds. Mm-hmm. They would switch the bags because neither one wanted to be by the window for the rocks no. that might come through. It was a sort of lighthearted humor that was typical of looking back on those moments. But the fact was, they would come in for a couple of days, uh, hope that locals who were bent on causing them harm couldn't figure out which house they were staying in, and they mm. would then get out. Mm. But the fact of the matter was, in the end, any of those houses and their occupants were trying to live their lives in the meantime. And paid a price long after the lawyers were gone. And so many of these people, whether they were parties in these cases or supporters or local counsel, ended up having their lives ruined in many ways, or or at the very least, making drastic changes in their lives and moving to other parts of the country. And so those, for him, those those were his heroes wherever he went. And indeed, Irene Morgan would be a classic example of that. I'm familiar with the area where that occurred, she had a lot of guts to do what she did. And her mm-hmm. lawyer, Spotswood Robinson, her initial lawyer, my father came in later with a man named William Hasty, who was the first African-American appointed to a federal judgeship. The, the three of them worked on that case, but Spotswood Robinson is a classic example of that. He was a Richmond lawyer who took these cases on, mm-hmm. often by himself. And actually, all three of them on the Irene Morgan case were appointed to the federal bench eventually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I recognize the name. Yeah. Well, the challenges you're talking about with the with sticking with the case, I mean, I think many lawyers had to, you know, if they're going to be straight up with a client, had to advise clients when they're talking about bringing litigation. You you may enjoy filing this thing, but you you probably won't enjoy prosecuting the thing. I mean, it's a you know, the the process is a tough one, even in the best of circumstances, a tough one for a, a plaintiff in a, in a lawsuit. It's long. It's arduous. I don't anticipate you know, having tables turned on them along the way, and yet inevitably that occurs. So I can only imagine in this circumstance with all the public vitriol and uh, the resentment and, and hatred on such a broad basis of having to deal with that, you know, as a plaintiff in a suit like this and have it gone for years. There's no doubt it would be life-changing. That's a, that's a tough tough deal. And that's right. A lot, of, a lot of courage for people, for families to do that. So it's also interesting when you talk about Little Rock, just thinking about the, the transition that did occur there. Little Rock obviously getting into the 50s and, and many of the claims starting to uh, deal with more systemic issues you know, following on the Brown versus the Board of Education victory uh, at the Supreme Court. So clearly, once and uh, once they came back and said, "Okay, what's the remedy going to be?" Which I think there were actually two cases between before the Supreme Court on Brown versus Edu- Board of Education of Topeka, one dealing with that there was systemic discrimination and it, and it could not be remedied uh, with a you know, separate but equal approach. This is the second case was what's the remedy, and they ultimately left the remedy to 
local authorities, but you're, you're moving 55 into uh, 54 into 55 into 50, yeah, 55. So the Arkansas circumstance you're describing, at least as it relates to the federal government with troop enforcement coming in, uh, would have been 59, if I call correctly, late Eisenhower administration. Yes. Which, which over a 10-year period, when you talk about things starting to change, it's starting to move. Uh, in the 40s, though Truman uh, took some steps to integrate the military, there was little else occurring beyond that in any kind of systemic way. So to have 10 years later, a Republican president of the United States sending in uh, the National Guard to enforce Supreme Court rulings, pretty extraordinary transition in that 10-year period and, and fascinating to see someone as you know, intuitively conservative as Dwight Eisenhower taking that action. I have a sense that what that symbolized in many ways, Eisenhower sending the troops into Little Rock in the late 50s, a transition or a change that had had started to occur, it, it obviously sped up enormously uh, with the election of John Kennedy and, and Kennedy and Johnson in the White House. Do you feel like a jack of all trades? Does this make you feel like you're less than your peers who are on the hunt to become a, quote, expert? Clifford Hudson, CEO of fast food chain Sonic for 23 years, imparts life and business lessons in his new book titled Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. If you'd like to learn Clifford's nine rules of thumb to finding success in life as a jack of all trades, just visit cliffordhudson.com. There you'll be able to download the first chapter of this new book for free. That's cliffordhudson.com for the first chapter of Master of None today. Now, back to the interview. In my book, I talk about things, uh, a bit of a perfect storm, a whole series of things coming together can be a perfect storm you know, to the negative, it depends on what you do with it, but all must be a perfect storm to the positive. All kinds of things come together that play to your benefit. Here, here your dad has spent, you know, 15 years at this point as counsel for the NAACP. John Kennedy gets elected in 1960. 59, you have uh, governor of Arkansas not wanting to enforce Brown versus Board of Education. President of the United States, Dwight Eisenhower, sends in National Guard to enforce it and allow the children to go to school uh, in Little Rock. 1960, John Kennedy gets elected. And in 1961, everything changes from a professional standpoint for your dad. Next steps, he's appointed to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, Court of, uh, the Second Circuit being for New York City. That's a, that was such extraordinary to think about a long career. And even in 59, arguing between, before the Supreme Court, uh, on these, uh, and as you said, going to Little Rock, staying there, you would have been, you know, three or four years old at that time, maybe five or six years old right. when he was nominated for court. Recollections of those times? Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, I'm, I'm mindful of it anytime I have some extra time in New York because the, that courthouse is now named after him. The mm. Holy Square in, uh, in New York, just near the base of the Brooklyn Bridge. And visiting that courthouse has is, is always been special, but now they have a wonderful annual program at the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. There are 
number of tributes in the building. And um, it's it's been a wonderful excuse to get up there and, and to be able to hear more stories and learn more. And indeed, one of his former law clerks is a district judge on the Southern District of New York there now, Paul Engelmeyer. And mm. so the the connections there are wonderful for us. Uh, my father liked to tell the story of his first day at the Second Circuit, where they gathered all the new the judges, and there were two new judges, my father and Irving Kaufman, sworn in. And so they wanted the official photo of the full composition of the Second Circuit. My father showed up and had his uh, law clerk, Ralph Winter, in tow, and they went to the courtroom a little early, trying to make sure that they were good rookies in the courthouse, to find that the photographers and the lighting people had managed to blow a fuse in the courtroom and the, the power was out. And one of the assistants looked up, saw my father and said, oh, thank goodness the electrician is here. Oh, and made that assumption, that unfortunate assumption pointed to my father, not to Ralph. My father tried to ease her off of uh, what was going to be an uncomfortable moment and explained who he was. And he said, by the way, if you think that the New York Electrical Union would allow a person of color in, I think you need some to learn a few things about them as well. <laughs> That's great. That's a great story. So Ralph, his first law clerk, they also love to tell the story where they they then they took the picture, they went down to chambers, they sat down, looked at each other and said, well, what do we do now? <laughs> um, and Ralph actually later was uh, a Reagan nominee to the Second Circuit. Uh, mm. He's a Yale law professor and mm. was one of my father's law clerks who uh, went on to become a judge. Mm. Well, wow, that's a great story. What a, it's a painful story, but what a great what a great story and tale of the time still. It's fascinating. I'm thinking about this concept, all of this kind of coming together, your dad's career changing um, so much uh, because of that, but the world changing as well. The year John Kennedy was elected, the year before your dad was appointed to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, the case of a Boynton v. Virginia uh, involving not so much the interstate bus transportation, but the plaintiff's desire to have a meal in the bus station and eat the same, and he was, he was an African-American man and, ha, and to have, be able to eat in the same area that white folks were eating. And he was denied access to that. The plaintiff in that case uh, may be unfortunate for the state of Virginia, happened to be a law student, I think, at, the, at uh, Howard University and uh, in turn bringing the complaint and in turn going to the uh, Supreme Court in 1960. I have a sense that there must have been a number of things. Yes, it was John Kennedy's election. Yes, it was a culmination of a whole series, you know, 15 to 20 years of rulings by the Supreme Court of, these nature, of this nature. But there, there must have been a bit of a series of things coming together here to make, it, make the difference. I shouldn't say there must have been. Obviously, there were. But with the, with the Boynton case, the, the freedom rides that occurred soon thereafter, when um, uh, he was denied the opportunity to have lunch, then obviously, uh, after Kennedy's assassination, uh, Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act. So there are a real shift of things that change your dad's trajectory uh, altogether. So by the time uh, your dad was appointed to the Supreme Court in '67, yeah, you would you would have been almost into your teen years, not quite. Any sense of that change in momentum and uh, nature and feel of things as the '60s? as you rolled into the 60s and 
Your dad went from second circuit court appeals to the solicitor general position in, I guess, in 65, perhaps two years there, and then to the Supreme Court. A sense of momentum and whirlwind that you, your family, or you recall more broadly? Well, absolutely. But it's such a blur because not only were there so many things happening in our immediate household, but the nation was so caught up in so many causes and battles. But yeah, I, re- I recently was was struck by yet another case in this this line of cases, this progression that we've been discussing, and that was a case in in the late '60s. I think it was 1967, which is Loving versus Virginia, and that was the miscegenation statute in Virginia, which barred interracial marriages. And I remember right. when I got around to studying that in in college con law, being struck by how late it occurred in the, in the movement. And mm-hmm. um, I only recently discovered, so if 1967 appeared to me at the time to be pretty late for the country and the court to be coming to that realization, I only recently discovered reading Isabel Wilkerson's wonderful book, Cast, that despite the fact that those statutes having been ruled unconstitutional in 67, there was one on the books in Alabama as recently as 2000. Mm. And if that's not more poignant in this discussion or poignant enough, what is particularly alarming is that when it was put on the ballot in 2000 in Alabama for repeal, 40% of the voters thought it should remain on the books. Yeah. So, mm. so for all of these, this whirlwind of activity that, that came together through the activity actions and cases in the, the 40s and through to the 60s, it's often astonishing that so many of these issues either percolate just below the surface or reappear. Mm-hmm. And voting rights, voting rights would be an example of issues that appear to have been resolved, but continue to reappear in, in replays. Yeah. Well, and as it relates to legislatures and constitutionality, the constitution for many legislatures need to never, never seem to be anything to get in the way. In other words, I think too often the view is uh, we'll pass the law, and if it's not constitutional, the judicial system will tell us later. But uh, uh, regardless, painful to see that, as we now see in the 21st century, still more of this than after the Obama presidency, or I should say during the Obama presidency, a widespread belief by many that somehow we were closing those chapters behind us. But, you know, that may well be wishful thinking. It strikes me as fairly uh, extraordinary, Thurgood Marshall Sr. Uh, appointed to the Supreme Court in 1967. Here it was just 21 years after arguing uh, before the Supreme Court, the case of you know Irene Morgan versus Virginia, going back to that case. So here, uh, having to litigate a case still on, at that time, on the books for the state of Virginia, still in the statutes, about Irene Morgan having to move to the back of the bus, challenging it, winning that case in 1946. And 21 years later, yeah, he's appointed the United States, States Supreme Court. An extraordinary, strikes me now, at a pretty good point in my life, an extraordinary pace of change and nature of change, given how complete you're talking about not being able to sit in a certain place on a bus versus getting appointed to the United States Supreme Court. Did your dad have that sense expressed to you about uh, in his in his lifetime seeing that degree of change, or 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 was it more just the, the some sense of 
frustration that he was still having to fight the fight at all. Any any thoughts on that? Yeah, actually, um, both sides of that that reaction. There was certainly because of the latter part of his tenure on the court being filled with at least on many of the, the cases that flow through these lines of issues. Uh, he was on the losing side and was writing a lot of dissents. So there's there was frustration. I suspect in that sense, he never voiced it, but I think it was fair to assume it was there. And it will it, it won't surprise you that I chose not to say, gee, that must be frustrating, is it? But there, there was also, because uh, of his college classmates' influence on him, Langston Hughes, the poet, there was also this level of optimism that even in the worst of times, this country and its citizenry and the way in which it was set up had the tools to get to that more perfect union. So there was a level of optimism throughout that that he carried. And I don't know how you couldn't when you could when you then, you know, you live through that period where so much progress is made, particularly for him in the courts and in the Supreme Court. It, it after all was a place when you talk about, as you were saying earlier, the, the room where it happens, this is a place where the, one of the few places within walking distance where someone like him of color could actually sit down and get a meal was the train station, Union Station, but certainly not many restaurants um, because of the, the color barriers. Uh, a place where he could walk in and be seated with practicing attorneys of every stripe and hear arguments. Nevertheless, there were members of the court who, during his lifetime, Justice McReynolds is a classic example who had no qualms about expressing their personal views in ways, for example, um, that, that my father's mentor, Charles Hamilton Houston, experienced. When he appeared before the court, McReynolds literally turned his chair around rather than listen to him. And McReynolds, who was a, a Woodrow Wilson appointee, the other Woodrow Wilson appointee, Louis Brandeis, Jewish, uh, McReynolds would not sit in the same room with him. And so you you go from having someone like that among the nine justices to having my father being included within the same lifetime. It 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 is it had to be striking for him, but certainly is astonishing for people who who watched it or was astonishing for them. And just to put the capstone on on that, um, in in light of where you were headed with your question, one of the judges justices who heard the the Irene Morgan case was Hugo Black, who had been a senator from Alabama, who uh, shortly after he was confirmed to the Supreme Court in the late 30s, there were allegations during his confirmation process, but then it was it was confirmed that he was a very senior official in the Ku Klux Klan in Alabama mm. prior to becoming a senator. He later became um, a bit of a firebrand on the, on the Warren Court, and he heard that he was there for the Irene Morgan case and, and sat on it. And ultimately, when my father was confirmed, he asked to be sworn in by Hugo Black. Mm-hmm. And Black gave him a special Bible to mark that occasion. And the way in which those lives moved and eventually intersected mm-hmm. is, is a fascinating example of what you're getting at, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's now in that room around that table with the nine and literally the tradition in the conference room at the court is that it's the nine when they're meeting, it's the nine and they don't, no one comes in. In fact, 
there are all sorts of entertaining stories about hazing the junior justice, including the fact that the that's their job is when there's a knock at the door, they need to go fetch whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But he's mm-hmm. the, he was one of the nine at that point. And mm-hmm. It's a beautiful no, story. Yeah. So he died in 93. Do I have that? Do I recall that's right. that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. So 15 years before he would have seen an African-American you know, 15, perhaps upwards of 16 years where he had seen an African-American become president of the United States, which um, would have been an extraordinary thing for him to live through and see. But I haven't been born in 1909, likelihood of living to 2009 was probably not not in the cards for much of any of us. But no, and I think I think he would he would say that he also consciously chose the trade off uh, to make sure he had plenty of fun during those years. (laughs) <laughs> that's very funny i had to ask any thoughts on your part over the years of uh pursuing a judiciary career as well or i mean you've you've done well and had a fascinating career yourself culminating perhaps in exceptional white house um service with that pinnacle being in the executive branch instead of the judiciary was that ever appealing to you or uh just less so perhaps Although I, there there are any number of things that are appealing to me, I think I have uh, such reverence for the judicial branch that I, I I may question whether I may have questioned at various points whether that was appropriate for me. Although I, when I when I was a law clerk at the federal district court level for a judge, I was deeply moved by everything I experienced and observed there, not only in chambers with my judge, uh, and how how carefully he worked the craft. The, the judges that I got to interact with around that building were all inspiring to me in so many ways. And it gave me great confidence in the American legal system. Uh, these were judges appointed by um, a variety of presidents, and all of them took those responsibilities more than uh, as, ser- as seriously as one would hope. And I was particularly struck by the way in which they could deal. This was the federal district court in, in Washington. So often we would get emergency claims dealing with what could best be described as highfalutin constitutional policy issues or policymaking questions to a judge. They focused on on those, but they also focused with the same, if not more intensity on every individual claim that came through there, including what in some respects, it could become the bane of a judge's existence. Endless numbers of habeas petitions from prisoners claiming that they were being held illegally. And the feeling there was that so many of these claims you have to struggle through because many times it's jailhouse lawyering, and sometimes jailhouse lawyering can sing as well as the most gifted attorney. But there are times where you have to really work through those to, to grasp the nature of the claim. And every one of those got full attention of, of my judge, I know. And it was particularly moving to me to watch him deal with, with criminal sentencing, where he, he decidedly would not allow the law clerks to get involved because he felt that, that was the most delicate part of his responsibility. And he Mm. recognized the impact not only on these individuals, but on their families. And so Mm -hmm. that's a long way of saying, I I think I revere the positions too highly to consider myself worthy of one of those. Well, that's a, that's one perspective I'd have to, I'd have to offer. I think you you would have uh, 
not only I, I think enjoyed it, you would have excelled at it and you don't get do-overs. So um, <laughs> that's, that's kind of true for all of us. So your modesty is appreciated. So any other thoughts as we kind of come to closure here on the, your, your dad's path and this extraordinary change in him? And uh, throughout the 20th century, but uh, frankly, from uh, World War II uh, through the uh, Kennedy years, a 20 to 25 year period with uh, exceptional change as it relates to uh, societal views, but also uh, expectations of you know, what could and should occur uh, in race relations in the United States. Anything to offer for our listeners before we wind up here today? Well, I appreciate that. And I do have a, a, a few things to offer based on a couple of items we discussed, the Morgan case, but also following on the themes in your, in your book. First, I did, I did promise to mention a couple of similar incidents just to put Irene Morgan's courage in perspective. The same month that she did what she did um, in kicking, resisting demands that she move on the bus to the back, Jack Roosevelt Robinson resisted moving on a bus. He was a soldier in uniform on leave in Texas. He was court-martialed for that. It, he was cleared of those claims. But that, but when you think about the things that could have happened to these individuals, he's another one to keep in mind. Jack Robinson, Jack Roosevelt Robinson, a few years later, would break the color barrier in baseball. And mm. we know him mm. as Jackie Robinson. He could easily have suffered what happened just a couple of years later to a man named Isaac Woodard, again, a soldier in uniform in Augusta, Georgia, who refused to move, was dropped off at the sheriff's office, magically appears in court with a zillion bruises on his body and blinded in both eyes. And he ultimately was permanently blinded by his treatment in that, mm. in that jail. Mm. Um, but the same thing Irene Morgan did. Well, actually, he did less. Um, and the last one I just wanted to mention, um, this one actually, like Jackie Robinson, occurred the same month that Irene Morgan had her moment. A man named Booker T. Spicely was on leave uh, in Durham, North Carolina, was asked to move, barked back. He was asked to move actually for a couple of white soldiers who were getting onto the bus, uh, barked back, complained that he had dodged bullets, just as many bullets as them. The argument continued to ensue as the bus pulled away. He was told to get off the bus. The driver got off the bus and shot him dead. Mm. Was charged with murder, acquitted after a deliberation of only 28 minutes. Mm. So as much as we correctly enjoy what Irene Morgan had the chutzpah to do, it, it's a very sobering reminder that so many other people had these terrible things occur and we don't know their names. Mm -hmm. But on the, on the master of none, Jack of all, I just wanted to add that um, in the early days of my father's lawyering, there was a, there's a book that uh, a professor, Larry Gibson did what uh, tracking. He, he's being a professor. He had the luxury of having students who could run around to different courthouses and check dockets. So he found a way to almost recreate my father's work day where he filed a will here in Prince George's County, and then in Anne Arundel County, did this or that the next day, and he could work back from that. He discovered that uh, on the master of none category, my father in his solo practice with one secretary needed to volunteer in the evenings as a check-in clerk at the VD clinic in Baltimore to make ends meet. So 
Mm. Uh, wow. He may have been a jack of all trades. Wow. He's not sufficiently a master of those to, <laughs> to keep that practice fully afloat. And, yeah. and he's, he's fortunate in other ways that the NACP and Charles Hamilton Houston needed his help. Right. Um, right. But I did also want to say uh, we were sharing this little anecdote and I wanted to make sure I mentioned it about uh, the, the perfect storm in the civil rights movement and the way in which all of the different pieces came together, coalesced in terms of a cohesive movement, which though there was competition within the movement for primacy and strategy, there was nevertheless a common goal in the end. And um, one of the, the wonderful pieces of evidence of that connection to me is the fact that I only recently discovered that the song that the Freedom Riders often sang when they were riding the buses through the South and facing death and, and all sorts of terrible experiences to make this point and galvanizing the general public because of the coverage of those Freedom Rides. The song that uh, the civil rights leader, Bayard Rustin, who would later be the primary organizer for the Civil Rights March on Washington, right. um, includes the line that there, there would be no, no more Jim Crow because Irene Morgan won her case. And the connections are both fascinating and inspiring to me. And that, that her case for that one incident in Virginia, rural Virginia, could be used to inspire those individuals to to display the courage that they did is is another example of how that perfect storm of events, courage, and people comes together at the right time in our history. Well, what a what a uh, poetic coming together of those elements and what that meant to the freedom riders um, at that point and her sacrifice, you know, fifteen and more years before them. Well, Thurgood, I appreciate your your time this morning. And it's been a fascinating uh, discussion from my standpoint. I've certainly enjoyed uh, the re- review of these from a philosophical standpoint, from what it meant for our society. Uh, also appreciate what a uh, fascinating personal journey all of that must have been uh, for your father. And I can't say thanks enough for sharing your thoughts and time uh, with us today on this. So thank you. My pleasure, Cliff. Thank you for having me as your guest. And thank you for producing this book. I am deeply respectful of all that you've done, your leadership, and all that you and Leslie have done for for the community. Well, I appreciate that. Look forward to talking to you after you read the book, you know, once it's out. So (laughs) see (laughs) see how that perspective is continues there. But thank you so much for the uh, for the compliment. And, uh, and of course, the same to you as well. Exceptional career public service and and one of which uh, I know your, your father would have been proud. So thanks again, and we'll look forward to talking along the way. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Master of None with Clifford Hudson. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you can visit cliffordhudson.com to receive the first chapter of Clifford's new book, Master of None, right now. And one more thing before you go, would you leave a review of this podcast and let us know what you learned in today's conversation? And remember, the greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity.